Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. We're in Ephesians chapter 5 tonight, verses 3 through 14. Someone once said, the worst is the corruption of the best. How apt that is when applied to the subject of sex, which is the subject of our study this evening from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 14. What is your attitude to sex? There are two extremes. Our culture thinks sex is everything. You know, witness advertising, right? You too can have this provocatively dressed woman if you also buy the car. Uh, we, we, we sell everything based on appeal. We think there's nothing better. We say anything goes. Or people will say, they're more rare, that sex is evil. The Bible says, they will say, and very incorrectly, that the Bible is against it, that enjoying it would be wrong always. What does the Bible say? What does God say? about this subject from Ephesians chapter 5 as we continue our weekly study in the book of Ephesians. Let me invite you to hear then God's word. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not associate with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper. And arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. Father in heaven, we pray that your word would be sweet like honey to our souls, that it would revive our souls, that it would give light to our eyes, joy to our hearts, that you would bless us by it. And show us again our Savior as King and Lord and Savior of his people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul says God contradicts both extremes. He says, God says, sex isn't everything. To make it the most important thing is to make it your God. But neither is sex evil. 
Everything God created is good. We ought to give thanks for it, he says. God is interested in us enjoying the best things, the way that he designed them. And so that's why he's talking to us about this issue. The problem is not sex. The problem is our fallen hearts that either misuse or abnormally use or abuse God's good gift. So Paul's talking here to Christians about sex. Notice three things tonight. Notice the context, notice his commands, and then notice all the counsel he gives us about why you would want to follow his teaching in this. Notice the context in the first place. Three or four comments to make. Since chapter 4, verse 1, Paul's been talking about how we should live, how to live a life worthy of the gospel to which we have been called. And at chapter 5, verse 2, he says, and I also want you to walk in love, to live a life of love. What he's been talking about since chapter 4, verse 25 is things like not lying to one another, not stealing from one another, not unjustly uh, being unjustly angry with one another, but rather loving one another by what? Speaking the truth to one another, working hard so that we can have something to give to the needy and love one another that way. And likewise, dealing with our anger appropriately, but being kind and tenderhearted and forgiving to one another. In other words, we said he's been talking about the sixth commandment, the eighth commandment, the ninth commandment, but he hasn't said anything about the seventh commandment when he sums it up in chapter five, verse two, by saying, so walk in love. Now, after saying walk in love, he turns to the seventh commandment and he gives you a rather extended number of paragraphs on how we apply the seventh commandment, which is you shall not commit adultery. It's the commandment about all our sexual attitudes and actions and words. Why is he saying this now? Well, maybe perhaps because in their day, not unlike in our day, somebody might hear the Bible say, love one another. And frankly, some would say, I love to love people. Why not love them intimately? I love a lot of people. Why not be intimate with a lot of people? So so Paul contradicts sexual love, and he says it doesn't look like that. That's not the kind of love I'm talking about. Let me tell you about this. So uh, in that Greek culture, it was extremely permissive. I mean, it was commonplace for a man to have a wife who could be at home to raise his children, but then to have a mistress on the side for his pleasures But then even to have access, even daily access to the temple prostitutes for what they called their daily needs. That was commonplace. The the Roman philosopher Cicero, a hundred years before Jesus said, when indeed is, is this not done? When did anyone ever find fault with this? When was such permission denied? You know, that even some of the great Greek temples were built with money received by people who paid for prostitutes as an act of obedience and worship to their deity whom they went to worship at the temple. And they had communion with the God via communion in the body. Just the way that culture was. In contrast, Paul is not saying, well, you know, sex is actually bad. You should never think about it. You should never want to have it. Uh, You know, even in the context of marriage, you you probably should feel a little guilty about it. That's not what the Apostle Paul is saying at all. But he knows that the Ephesian Christians have grown up in a culture like that, that they might be tempted to it. And I would say our culture 
is far worse in its immediate accessibility to this. And so he's teaching us about true Christian love. So that's by way of context, that's the first point. Second is this, don't misunderstand Paul. He isn't saying here, when he gets to this part of the book, you know, trust in Jesus and also perfectly obey the seventh commandment and then God will be gracious to you and save you. He is not setting up some form of salvation by believing in Jesus and getting this commandment perfect in your heart, words, and actions. Friends, if he was saying that, we would all go to hell. Because there is no one who is perfect about any commandment. So, so, so he isn't saying then to us, well, you know, what you really need to do at church is look like, pretend that. You have it all together in this area and that you live this way. Otherwise, they'll kick you out of the club. That's not what he's saying. And if you think he's saying that, you will eventually resent him for saying it. You will eventually find yourself living like a hypocrite. You will eventually walk away from Jesus. If you think those are the expectations and that you can keep them and your only hope before God is your obedience. Third comment about context You know, you don't call your son or your daughter into a room to have a little talk with them about an issue if that issue isn't an issue with them. And that's the same way the Bible speaks to us. The writers of the New Testament don't write things in them about virtue and vice or sin or righteousness just because they decided sort of let's talk about this airy, fairy, pie-in-the-sky theology and, and, and application that doesn't have anything to do with daily life and nobody really needs to hear this because nobody struggles with this. That is not what they're doing here. They're writing because this is a standing problem in the Christian church and in the Christian life. And that ought to be an enormous encouragement to you. If you struggle in any of the areas Paul has just mentioned here, That's why Paul's writing to you. He wants to help you. He's not expecting that you will be just like Christ instantaneously. Though salvation means God forgives you and counts you as just like Christ in his eyes. Instantaneously. You who believe in Jesus could not be more perfect before the throne of God than you are right now. Because you're in Christ who's perfect. But the living of it and the being made more like Christ in your experience is not instantaneous. It's it's a long fight and battle. It's a process. It's not easy. And by way of context, I want to say one more thing, friends. If you wonder about the propriety of speaking about this issue in the church, then I would say this to you. Paul speaks about it here in this letter, which he expects will be read publicly in church. And you may say, but the children are present. And I would say to you, at chapter 6, verse 1, he directs his attention directly to them, speaking to them and saying, children, here are words for you. In other words, Paul assumes the children are present. He knows they're in worship and they're hearing this text. We all need to hear about God's perspective on our bodies and the use and misuse of our sexuality. Some things, Paul says, very pointedly, we shouldn't even talk about or mention. They're too shameful to speak about. But we do have to say something 
about this issue. That's context. Now notice his commands then. What is he telling us to do? Verses 3 and 4. He is saying this, verse 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you, which is proper among saints. He begins with sexual immorality. It's a word from which, it's porneia, from which we get get pornography, though it doesn't just refer to what we call, you know, films, pictures, movies, what we call porn. It's a word that refers to all sex outside of marriage. If somebody tells you the Bible, for instance, that, you know, uh, single people, the Bible never really says single people can't have sex or premarital sex is wrong. Well, it does. They don't use that expression, that form of words. That's not the way they spoke. What did they say? They used this word, porneia. Porneia for those who are married is adultery. Porneia with someone in your own family is incest. Porneia if you're single, is fornication. Porneia, with someone of the same sex, is homosexuality. And Paul says, don't do these things. And then he goes deeper than that. He says, and also all impurity. And that's the Old Testament word for uncleanness. Moses uses that word all the time in, in Leviticus and other places. He speaks here of the general category of sexual impurity, like, for instance, sexual fantasies. Or, um, well, in our day, internet pornography. And I want to say a word to women, to moms, to wives, to sisters, to daughters. Porn is eating men alive in our culture. We ought to weep over it. As I've been with multiple couples this year where she is weeping. For her husband. Sadly it's beginning to eat women alive too. It used to be that you could kind of say. That porn was a man's problem. Generally. Because generally speaking men are visual. And the way women were broken. Is different than the way that men are broken. Generally we used to say. Uh, Men broken sexually. Lusted after what they saw. And the way women were broken sexually. Was that they lusted to be lusted after. I'm told that, four fa- uh, that uh, all but four Fayetteville High School cheerleaders were kicked off the team for sexting classmates. Porn is becoming a mainstream problem for women as well. It's probably a significant issue for people in this room tonight. And then he goes on to speak of our covetousness or greediness here. And I think because of the two words he's just used, he probably doesn't mean covetousness in the sense of you want more money and more possessions, but probably means greedy for this. Like in the 10th commandment when it says you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And then he turns at verse 4 to our words about these things. And he says, you know, obscenity and foolish talk and coarse joking, filthy language and dirty language and gutter talk and double entendres. And all this stuff, this is what he's talking about. I think it was Aristotle who said the double entendre was just a wonderful piece of wit. It was a virtue for him. And Paul is is taking up that same idea and saying, no, 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 no. Don't don't live in the gutter even with your words here. Uh, John Stott says a dirty mind expressing itself in dirty conversation. Notice then what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, see how evil 
sex is. He says the evil is our abuse of it. And instead, what does he say we should do? This is part of his command. What should we do? He says, end of verse 4, instead he says, let there be what? Let there be thanksgiving, he says. He says this is something we ought to celebrate. Don't, Don't belittle it. Don't think little of it. Don't make light of it. Don't call it a necessary evil, but rejoice in it. Thank God for it. And he says that because this is God's idea. It's his creation. It's good. You have to deal, friends, with a God who created pleasure. It's not the devil's idea that things in life are pleasurable. You have to deal with a God who created Adam and Eve in the garden, brought them together and said the two will become one flesh, and they were naked and unashamed. You have to deal with a God who created your taste buds and then gave you ice cream, steak, and oranges to satisfy your tastes. You have to deal with a God who gave you a sense of smell so that you could enjoy the smell of fresh baked chocolate chip cookies. He could have given you the cookies without the smell or ability to smell them. But you deal with a God of pleasure, friends. You deal with a God who concentrated the nerve endings exactly where he did in the parts of your body. He wasn't making you and had some leftover and said, let's just throw them over there. This was his idea, friends. And he did it because he's good. He's good. And because he's the God of good things. So sex is something he created for his glory and to bless a husband and wife as they bless one another. Is Christianity then oppressive? Absolutely not. The scriptures hold it in the highest regard, friends. But, you know, if you listen to the news, people will get on this subject and they'll say, well, you know, Christianity, well, uh, they're really prudish about sex. You know, they're, uh, they're puritanical about it, they'll say. Well, anybody who knows anything about the Puritans would never say that. The Puritans were not devils. They were consumed with the word of God. And if you want to get a sort of a barometer reading of of what the Bible teaches about something, you can listen to the Puritans and get a good sense of it. One Puritan, William Gooch, lived 350 years ago, said this, married couples should engage in sex with goodwill and delight, willingly, readily, and cheerfully. And another said this, when two are made one by marriage... They joyfully give due benevolence, sex. One to the other as two musical instruments rightly fitted do make a most pleasant and sweet harmony in a well-tuned concert. You know what's great about that? You probably have heard people say, you have friends who think this if you don't, that, you know, one day I'll get married and... That'd be the right thing to do, but isn't that going to be kind of like, thinking about sex, eating the same meal every day of the rest of my life? People think that, friends. And you know what illustration I would use to counter that? I would say this, it's more like buying a vintage, well-crafted instrument and learning to play that instrument really, really well in concert with your spouse which is a different way of looking at it. 
Sex is wonderful and it's, it's worthy to be celebrated, to give thanks for it. That's what he says. And, and by the way, if you still wonder about the Puritans, you know that they usually had about 10 kids. They obviously didn't hate. Okay, so, uh, so I would say this by way of application. Would, dear friends, if you are married, you ought to glory in it and delight in one another to the glory of God. And if you're single, you ought to look forward to it and pray even now for your future spouse and wait for them to give yourself wholeheartedly and whole bodily to them. And let children even now learn that God made us sexual beings. It's his idea. And the body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. And the one who thought of this is wise enough to know its proper use in marriage. So Paul says, to all of us, repent then of misusing it by how you speak about it, by what you do. That's the command. And then finally he says, and here's my counsel to you. And it takes up almost all these verses. He piles up reasons and counsel to persuade you to embrace his view and to walk in the way he's telling you to walk. And he, and he does it in a variety of ways. Let me just highlight four things that he says to you by way of trying to help you. Reasons you should let sexual immorality go and let it be in your past. Number one reason is, is because of your new identity. Your new identity. Fans of Lord of the Rings, maybe you saw the latest installments of The Hobbit. I can't remember if it's in the book or in the movie, but there's a point where Bilbo Baggins, a hobbit who just loves his home as any good hobbit does, his fire, his kitchen, his comforts, his pipe. He's invited by Gandalf to, to go on an adventure with dwarves. And Bilbo, of course, as you would expect, says no. And then Gandalf reminds him this. The world is not in your books and maps. It's out there. And Bilbo replied, I can't just go running off into the blue. I am a baggins of bag end. And Gandalf plants the seed that builds the whole story. When he says, you are also a took. Did you know that your great, 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 great uncle Bullroarer took was so large he could ride a real horse? And that just stirs in the imagination of Bilbo. And he realizes there's, a, there's took in him. He's not what he thought he was. He's, he's something more than what he thought. He's different than what he thought he was. And that took side of him takes over. And he goes on his adventure because he began to live what he actually was. It was in him to do this. And that's what I'm saying to you. In a different way, of course, you didn't inherit this from your great-grandfather. God himself has made you what? End of verse 3. He has made you saints. He's speaking of behavior that's proper than among holy ones. People God has set apart for himself. That's who you are. But you're more than that, he says. Verses 8 and 9, he says, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light. In other words, he's, he's, he's defining for you your identity, who you really are. Then he'll say, walk as children of light. Because you already are light. That's what he's saying. It's, it's not that, that you used to be in darkness and now you're in the light, but it's that you used to be 
darkness. And now you are light. Once you lived in darkness, of course, and it lived in you. And it's what you were. You were a son of darkness or sons of disobedience, as Paul has described it. And now we are light and children of light. And God is light. And light produces fruit. And the fruit we need to produce is goodness and righteousness and truth. That's what he's looking for. That does not mean you won't face temptation. It doesn't mean you will never stumble, never trip, never fall, or ever, ever sin. It does not mean that. But it does mean you're not trying to clean up in order to become new. You are new in order that God might perfect you. You are not trying to be perfect so that you can become a new person. Instead, God has already made you a new person, light in the Lord. And he is determined then to make you perfect like Christ, who is the light of the world. That new identity ought to shape you. You need to live in that. This is what he says you are. But there's a second reason we need to lift sexual immorality behind it is this. Because to live in it is idolatry. To truly give your heart to it, Paul says here, and to walk in it, and to, is in a sense to worship it, to worship the pleasure of it, or even to worship yourself, rather than to worship God. If your heart is for it, and your body is for it, and your life is given to it, it means you are an idolater, he says. End of verse 5. Everyone who is sexually immoral or impure is covetous, that is an idolater, so you see what he's saying? Now, again, will, will, will a Christian never struggle in these areas? Of course they will. Sin dwells in us. It lives in us. We are really new, genuinely new, not perfectly new. But will they at the same time be saying, oh, Lord, I'm broken. I'm messed up. Rescue me, please. There will be sighs and tears and longings to be more like Jesus. Some kernel and nugget of of a seed of longing to be like the Lord is in the heart of every believer. The Holy Spirit is in you and you've been changed. So Paul's not saying that, you know, well, if you ever as a Christian have an immoral thought, if you ever commit an immoral deed, if you ever speak immoral words, That will keep you from heaven. He is not saying that. Paul's not saying there is never failure among believers. But when we do fail, we repent and we ask for forgiveness and we receive forgiveness and we're restored and we aim with the help of the Lord to walk in his ways. This is what he sees. So, So when he speaks of The idolater here, the immoral, the impure, he's speaking of a person with a lifestyle where they are characterized by these sins. It's who they are, and it is what they do. It's a pattern that reveals their God in their life. And God says, listen, friends, I don't give you a choice of, A, you can have me, and you can have what I hate. Or B, You can have me and you can have what I love. God never gives his people that choice. God says it's me and that which I love. 
and never me and that which I hate. I only come with this package, me and what I love, what is good for you, what's whole, what gives you joy. That's the me you get when you get me. And if you've decided in your heart that you don't want me that way, you don't want me and my kingdom and my grace, and you don't want to be made like Jesus, and you don't want to walk with Jesus, and you don't want to fight sin, and you don't want to deal with sin, but you just want to have Jesus and do anything and everything you want to do, God says, you cannot have me like that. You don't have me like that, is what he's saying. So as long as they continue to live in unrepentant immorality, they have no hope. The Bible calls us to repent. One of, the, one of the ways for all of us to do that is actually to do what Paul said to do, which was what? To give thanks for sexual immorality. It's difficult to, from the heart and sincerely, be thanking God for the gift that he's given. And simultaneously to have the gift itself be a greater priority, to be your God. You're thanking the one who made it, created it, and gave it. It dethrones the thing in your experience. So Paul says, to live in this, in the way we've described, would be to be an idolater. And then he does a third thing and a fourth. The third is this. He, he confronts you with the wrath of God and the cross of Christ. He warns you in verses 5 and 6, you may be sure of this, he says, that anyone, everyone who is, as he's described, they have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. He just pulled out the big word. He just laid on you the wrath bomb. Okay? He just, it, it sounds like, you know, maybe Ted's going to do hellfire and brimstone preaching now. Because now we're going to talk about the wrath of God and human sexuality and sin. But do you understand how he's helping Christians? If you're a Christian, he is helping you here. Because you need to remember what your sin deserves. And you need to see that God is serious about it, that it is a terrible thing, that it brings his judgment, his wrath against it. And you need to realize that wrath was laid on Christ on your behalf. And all the wrath you deserve for your failures here, all that wrath has already been placed on your suffering Savior himself upon the cross. And he bore it away and he turned it away from you and you are free. And if you are a Christian, all your sexual sins, all your dirty thoughts, all your filthy desires, all your immoral actions, all were accounted to Christ. And he bore them away. Would you let the cost of your salvation sink in just a little bit? is what Paul is saying to you. Would you remember this? And then would you learn to hate it as the Lord hates it? You will never leave what you do not hate. As long as you love it, you'll never leave it. You'll tell yourself, I need to stop. You'll tell yourself, I need to be careful. You'll tell yourself, I need to refrain. I need to limit. I need to do less. But until you hate your sin, you will never truly leave it, the Bible is saying to you. Your heart will cling to it. You need to learn to hate it because you saw what it did to Christ. 
And you need to learn to hate it because Christ loved to die for you. And so he says, therefore, don't be partners with people who entice you into this. The ESV says don't associate with them. That's not the meaning of the word. Paul in First, first or Second Corinthians actually tells you, I don't mean don't associate with the people of the world. Or you'd have to go out of the world. Jesus was a friend of sinners. The Bible wants you to be a friend of sinners. But to the extent that your associations with them actually entice you into partnership in their activities, he's saying, at that point you have to say, I can't do this, and you have to walk away. And so he says, let the wrath bearing of Christ on your behalf be a motivation to you. But lastly, in the fourth place, he says this. Let also, uh, let, let you put immorality behind you. Why? Because you love the Lord. In verse 10, he says, find out what, or try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And he's getting at the fact, he's tugging on your heartstrings. You love the Lord. You know, the worst sports mistake I ever made in life, as I look at my life, was in seventh grade. I had been for three years, I think, uh, an avid soccer player. And at that young age, I might say so myself, quite good. And then Jan Lashley, who I grew up with, lived in my neighborhood, sat in Spanish class. I remember the day like it was yesterday. Jan Lashley had long hair. She was tall. And I had an incredible infatuation with Jan Lashley. And we praised Jesus. It didn't work out. (laughs) But Jan Lashley, I overheard her say one day that she thought soccer was stupid. She said something different than that, but. Politeness keeps me from saying what she said. And I heard her say that, and I quit soccer that day in my heart. And I never played soccer again, not, not competitively soccer, until 12th grade when I was no good on a team anymore. But it was clear that Jan Lashley had, had never taken a second look in my direction just because I had given up soccer for her. But you understand what I'm getting at. When, when you, and that was just an, a childhood infatuation, fleeting, ridiculous. But you understand this. If you're married, you understand this. When you love somebody, you begin to figure out what pleases that person. What do they delight in? What do they like? And you begin to aim to do that thing, to walk in that way. And this is what Paul is saying to you. Discern what pleases the Lord. You who love The Lord. And what is that? Don't, he says, take part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather, he says, expose them. Bring them into the light. When Melinda and I lived in Jackson, Mississippi, there were cockroaches that were literally two or three inches long. And this was a, like, statewide problem. But you could go into a room in your house and flip on the lights at night, and cockroaches would just scatter into the darkness if they could find a crevice to hide it. Because light drove them away. They were afraid of the light, I guess. Paul is saying to you, the way to get rid of the cockroaches of this kind of filth in your life is to actually, not to hide it, not to bury it, not to pretend it doesn't exist, but to actually bring it out into the light for healing, for sanitation. Sanitizing. To bring the sunlight of God's grace and face and truth and kindness and forgiveness onto you and heal you. 
And I want to say to you, I'm a man like every man in this room. I know, ex- I know a lot of what Paul is talking about here. You can talk to me. I'd be glad if you did. Jesus is a great Savior. He's kind and he's patient and he's good and he wants all good things for you. And I want you to hear that absolutely clearly. But if you conclude here today, to conclude, if you conclude at the end of all this, that you know what? You're not even a Christian. You, you, you're sitting here realize today, you don't really care about this issue. You enjoy your pleasures. You have no interest in serving the Lord and following the Lord in this. You, you've, you've never really begun to fight sin in this way. You haven't begun to love the Lord. Paul would say to you, you know what you are? You are dead in your trespasses and sins. And you are darkness and living in darkness. And you are liable to the judgment it deserves. But you are not without hope. He ends at verse 14 and he says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead and Christ will dawn on you. He is, he is holding out hope in Jesus to you. Wake up, he says, for God loved us in this way, that he sent his son into the world, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. No force of darkness can quench his light. No smell of filth will drive him away. No sense of being unforgivable can keep him from forgiving you who cry out to God and say, Lord God, have mercy on me because Christ died for my sin. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, you know us better than we know ourselves. Forgive us, we pray, all of our iniquity. Cleanse us and renew a right spirit within us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, let me invite you to stand then. And we'll sing in response to the Lord's word.